You know what one definition of a preacher's delight is? That's getting up at 11 o'clock. Gives him plenty of time to do the things that need to be done. We've got a lot we want to do today. Last week, you'll remember, we began a, a series, a short series, taking us away from the Gospel of John, but a, a short series designed to introduce, explain, and affirm the core values of Foothill Bible Church. Those things that, by the grace of God, will drive this ministry for the decade to come. And we defined those core values for you last time. Let me give it to you again. In fact, I probably will give it to you every week of the five weeks so that you have it really kind of fixed into your mind. And we defined core values, you remember last time, as the deepest, most constant, most passionate beliefs and commitments that drive either individuals or organizations. Those things that we hold most dear in our hearts. We also noted for you last time that there can and often is a difference between what we would call aspirational core values and actual core values. Our aspirations, the things that we desire to be true of us, are not always that which is true of us. And that by the grace of God, as we grow in that grace and our understanding of the Scriptures and our obedience to the Word as we understand it, of course, that process of bringing aspiration and actual together is what we are driving for and indeed what God is about in us. We said last time as well that there are five aspirational core values for Foothill Bible Church that the elders after months of study and prayer, have, have boiled it all down to, to five short statements that we believe encapsulate what it means for us as a church to diligently follow Christ and courageously proclaim Him. They're there for you in your handout. Last week I didn't have them in there, and so this week I went ahead and put them in there for you. Why don't you take a look at them again as I read them. They're right near the top. And that is that the Foothill Bible Church is devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we are determined, we are determined to obey the Bible. Third, we are dedicated to prayer. Dedicated to prayer. Fourth, we are daring to minister by faith. Daring the minister by faith, and five, developing disciples to reach the nations. These short statements, we believe, encapsulate all that we are about, all the good things that we are about, and all the things that we want to be about in the years to come can be found underneath these bedrock value statements. So by God's grace, these will become very much a part of our individual lives and corporately the life of this fellowship. Now again, just continuing to get you up to speed here, last time we began to, to in a very cursory way, look at that first statement of value, being devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we said last time that being devoted to Christ manifests itself in really three ways. We noted them for you. It was our embracing of 
genuine worship as a way of life. The embracing of genuine worship as a way of life. Second, it was our pursuit of sincere love for the brethren. And third, it was our practice of personal holiness. So it was our worship, it was our love, and it was our holiness that sort of explained what it meant to be devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we will endeavor to unpack for you a little bit the second value, which is our determination to obey the Bible. And this is for you here, right in front of you on your handout. There is uh, three distinct aspects to this determination that I want to look at with you this morning. And again, just like last week, we're going to be moving quickly through it. We're not going to say everything that could be said about this topic. We'll say more in the weeks, months, and years to come as we continually reaffirm these things individually and corporately. But let's begin together unpacking the aspects of what it means to be determined to obey the Bible. So first, determined to obey the Bible, FBC or Foothill Bible Church submits to biblical authority. We submit to biblical authority by rightly interpreting and boldly teaching the whole counsel of God as revealed in the Old and New Testaments. Okay? We are in submission to biblical authority and we demonstrate that submission by our right interpretation and our bold teaching of the whole counsel of God. From Genesis to Revelation, the Scriptures are profitable for us. Now, when we begin with the word authority, that immediately um, piques people's interest. It launches us really into a discussion of what is authority. There was a time when uh, we wouldn't even really need to talk about that very much, but we live in a very much an anti-authoritarian time. Authority is not popular outside the church and inside the church, so we need to spend a little bit of time talking about authority. What is biblical authority, and why is a, a stated determination to, to submit to biblical authority such a radical idea today? Let me, let me do this this morning in a series of Q&As, questions and answers, okay? I will raise a series of questions, and I'll try to answer them, and, and maybe we can unpack it that way, this whole concept of biblical authority. So let's begin with the first question, and that is, what does the word authority mean? Let's just start right there, okay? What does the word authority mean? Well, let me give you a dictionary definition because I think it suits us just fine. Authority is the right and power to command, enforce laws, exact obedience, determine, or judge. Okay? Authority is the right to do all of those things, to command people to do this and not do that, to enforce law upon people, to exact their obedience, to require their obedience, to determine things for them, to limit their rights or grant them rights. That is all what it means to exercise authority. And as I said, we live in a culture that resists authority. Perhaps the uh, quickest and simplest way that I can illustrate the validity of that statement is for you to reflect on your morning commute. When you get on the road, look around 
at the number of people that drive in accordance with the posted speed limits. And you will know that we live in a culture that is anti-authority, right? It says speed limit, not speed suggestion. Okay, but if you drive the speed limit in Southern California, you will be most likely mowed over. Okay, whether that be on the freeways or the side streets. Okay, so if you want to, if you want a vivid illustration, I could, I could go on for an hour pointing out the anti-authoritarianism that infects us as a people inside and outside the church, but just take a look at other people's driving habits, okay? And you will know that they are anti-authoritarian, or anti-authority, rather. So, that leads me to my second question, and that is, does the Bible claim authority for itself? We say we're determined to, to obey the Bible and submit to biblical authority, but does the Bible really even claim any authority in our lives? Is this, a, is this a false dilemma that we've created here? Well, I don't believe so at all. Open your Bibles to the end of John chapter 12. And let's see if we can answer this question. Does the Bible claim authority for itself. Here in John 12, 47 to the end of the chapter, 47 to verse 50, Jesus very clearly says that he is a man under authority. And the authority that he resides under is his father's word. He lives under the authority of his father's word. Listen. Jesus says, and if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus said, I didn't come to give you my own ideas about God. I came with a very specific mission, and my mission was to reveal the Father to you. And the things that I say are the Father's words that He has given to me. And if you don't heed them, it is not me who will stand and judge over you. It is the Word of God that will stand as your judge. The apostles, Jesus' direct Followers to whom he entrusted the mission of spreading the gospel truth out to the whole world also lived in a, a conscious understanding that they resided under the authority of the Word of God. Go with me over to uh, Acts chapter 4, and we can clearly demonstrate this for you there in verse 19 of Acts 4. Here, Peter and John have been preaching, and they've done a miracle and so forth, and they are summoned before the, the Jewish authorities, and they want them to stop speaking. They're saying to them, no more of this Jesus stuff, okay? 
And so in 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Turn over to chapter 5, verse 28. Maybe verse 27, just to pick up a context there. They've been rearrested because they have not stopped speaking, which they were told to do. 27, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council and the high priest questioned them. Verse 28, Acts 5, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. We told you to stop and you haven't stopped. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, look at it, we must obey whom? God rather than men. Okay? So, the apostles claim that the authority of God and His Word in their life, because they had been told in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 to go into all the world and do what? Make disciples, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's God's Word to them. And then the authorities come along and say, Be quiet. And they respond and say, you know, we have conflicting authority sources at this moment. We are supposed to submit to our governmental, governmental authorities. That is God's plan for us. But when our governmental authorities require something of us that is in direct uh, contradiction of God's word to us, we must obey God rather than man. And so they are very conscious of who is the authority in their life. Beyond that. Over and over again in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament will quote the Old Testament and they will use introductory phrases such as the Holy Spirit says or God says. So when they write in the New Testament, the New Testament writers are very conscious of what went before them in the Old Testament and they don't say that Isaiah said, I mean they say that sometimes, but, but other times they say God said. When Isaiah spoke, God spoke, and the New Testament writers understood that. So there's the authority in their own writings that is based upon the God-spoken word of the Old Testament. Beyond that, beyond that, 33 times in the New Testament, there is a Greek perfect tense verb translated into the English, it is written. Or more literally, it stands written. Meaning that it has been written once and it continues in its, in its validity forever, going forward. It settles the matter permanently. Matthew 21, verse 13. Don't turn there, just listen. Jesus said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. There was a very much the sense that what God wrote has enduring authority. It is written. It stands written. And then lastly, go with me to uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 
where there was one of the most shocking statements, I think. And that is the, the apostles' self-conscious understanding that when they opened their mouths under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the words they speak are God's words, not human opinion. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, the Apostle Paul has just been laboring away for three chapters here in the Corinthian, with the Corinthian assembly with regard to their misuse of spiritual gifts. And here at the end of chapter 14, he arrives at that section that, that causes most people to kind of grimace a little when they read it because it is a, an amazing statement that he makes here. Well, let me just look at verse 37 and then we'll go back to the amazing statement. Verse 37, Paul says, If anyone thinks... He is a prophet or spiritual. Let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Well, let your eyes stray up just a little bit to verse 34 and notice what he wrote. Hmm? Now that'll turn the modern church on its ear, won't it? I don't have time to explain what he's saying there. If you're interested, you can ask me later. But the Apostle Paul clearly says, what I have written here is God's commandment. It is not subject to negotiations. So does the Bible claim authority for itself? Absolutely. It absolutely claims authority for itself. How far? Does that authority extend? Question, how far does the Bible claim its authority extends? Does it go only so far and then stop? Are there things in life that are outside of the authority of the Word of God? Well, keep going to the right to Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1, beginning in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything is one of those kinds of words in the Greek that translates really well into the English. In the Greek, everything means everything. And in the English, everything means, help me out here, it means everything. Indeed, it does. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Not most things. Not everything except everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the true knowledge of Him who called us. 
We receive the true knowledge of Him who called us through His inscripturated Word. The only way you know God truly is to know Him as He has revealed Himself in the Bible. So, is there anything that lies outside of the Bible's authority, according to Peter? Answer, no. Nothing. And during the Protestant Reformation, one of the rallying cries of the Reformers was sola scriptura, Scripture alone. That it was the Bible alone that it was the authority over the church. Not popes and councils, not personal experience, not private revelation, you know, God told me to whatever. Not science, not sociology, not psychology, not pragmatism. You know, if it works, it must be okay. Not popular opinion. Everybody's doing it. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. The authority of the Scriptures extends in every direction. Within the church, it extends over our worship. It extends over our counseling. It extends over our evangelism. It extends over our missions. It extends over our business practices. Everything we are and we do is governed by the Word of God. Its authority resides over us. We do what we do aspirationally because of the Bible. And we don't do what we don't do because of the Bible. Now, nobody lives perfectly in line with their aspirations. I'll be the first to admit that. So there are a number of things, no doubt, that we are doing that are not biblical and things that we should be doing that are biblical and it'll be our goal together as a fellowship to grow in the direction of bringing everything under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's revealed in His Word. That leads me to another question. What are the necessary implications of the Bible's authority? Necessary implications. And there are no doubt many. I've got three of them here that I want to talk to you about this morning. Three, what I believe are necessary implications of the Bible's authority. So the first one is since the Bible is supreme, is the supreme authority in the church, it is critical that all appeals be based upon a true and correct interpretation of its meaning. Let me repeat that, kind of unfold it for you a little bit. Since the Bible is the supreme authority in the church, it's critical that all appeals to the Bible be based upon a true and correct interpretation of its meaning. It's a great big club, but it must be welded, or wielded rather, according to God's purposes. Someone said that the meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture. I like that. If you don't have the meaning right, you do not have the Scripture. And when you have the Scripture, you have the authority of God. That's why it has to be carefully used. We dare not usurp God's authority and apply it to our human opinion. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that when you say the Bible says this, it better say it. 
that it better not be your personal opinion, your wisdom, your understanding of life's issues that you have then band-aided Bible verses on usurping the authority of God which is supreme in the universe to support your personal opinions. This is a huge matter. Because as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we in are endeavoring to go is to in complete and total submission to the Word of God. So that when, when God speaks through His Word, we move, we do, we stop doing, whatever. We respond. That is, the, that is the heart of a follower of Jesus Christ. Christ Himself displayed that for us. He did the Father's will. Whatever the Father said for Him to do, He did. Where the Father told Him to go, He went. Whatever the Father told Him to say, He said. He had arrived at that perfect place of submission. And that's where we're driving for. Is to be in total submission to the authority of the Word of God. But if we're going to be in total submission to the authority of the Word of God, then the people who are using the Word of God better be using it right. Let not many of you become teachers, for you will incur a stricter judgment. So it's critical that we interpret rightly the Word of God using the grammatical, historical approach to interpretation. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is the grammatical approach that means that the rules of grammar govern the Word of God. Nouns are nouns, verbs are verbs. What it means grammatically is what it means, not what we think it means or we'd like it to mean or what it means to me. Okay? It means what it means. It is a written document that can be and must be interpreted according to the rules of grammar. Beyond that, it has to be interpreted in its historical context. We have to ask ourselves questions like, who was it written to? When was it written? Why was it written? What was the author's meaning when he wrote that? Is the passage descriptive, meaning telling us about something that happened, or is it prescriptive, meaning it's telling us what we must do? We must do exegesis. That means to take out of the text, not eisegesis, which means to put into the text our human opinions. Go back to the left with me just a little bit to... Uh, 2 Timothy. I could rattle this off, and I'm sure you could too, 2 Timothy 2.15, but I want you to look at it. Actually, we'll pick it up in verse 14. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, Remind them of these things, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. But be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Those who handle accurately the word of truth have no need to be ashamed. Those that do not handle accurately the word of truth should be ashamed. We are holding in our hands God's written revelation to us. 
It is not a clay nose that we can form to fit whatever our personal agenda or preferences are. Secondly, we must, by consequence, teach the whole counsel of God. Go with me over to uh, Acts chapter 20. And listen to how the Apostle Paul bid farewell to the church at Ephesus. You know, there is a real temptation, believe me, there is a huge temptation to avoid those passages of Scripture as a teacher or a preacher that are kind of offensive. I mean, unless you're sort of pathological and and like irritating people or, or having them dislike you, then there are passages of Scripture that that are just you would rather not have to preach because they are offensive or they are hard to understand. And it would be much easier to hop, skip, and jump our way around and we could do all the passages on love and then we'd all be happy with one another. But there's a lot more to the Word of God than just that. And so, therefore... We must teach the whole counsel of God. That's one of the reasons, by the way, beloved, that I am such a strong uh, proponent of verse-by-verse expository preaching because what happens is you begin in the beginning of a book and you go all the way through and you've forced yourself to deal with whatever is in the book. And all the hard topics that you'd like to leave aside, well, you just have to face them. So it's sort of a self-discipline. But look here in verse 20. of Acts 20, as Paul is giving an account of his ministry among the church there at Ephesus. In verse 18, he says, You yourselves know, and then he picks it up here, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. I didn't just hide behind the pulpit, but I even came into your own homes and taught you the same stuff, okay, where you could throw things at me. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn a little further, verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Paul says, There are things that I would have, not, I would have preferred to rather not to teach. But I taught you the whole counsel of God, the whole purpose of God. I did not shrink back. I told you what you needed to hear, not what you wanted to hear. So there needs to be a a teaching of the whole counsel of God, if it is all God's word, all God's authority. Beyond that, third, we must teach the scriptures with boldness. must teach them with boldness and declare their authority regardless of the opposition to it. Sort of a sub-point perhaps even of this one before. Regardless of the opposition, we must boldly proclaim all that the Scripture has to say. Go again back to 2 Timothy. This is good. This keeps you awake when you're flipping around like this. 2 Timothy again, chapter 4. Notice how chapter 4, verse 1, Paul picks it up. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. That's an awful big lead-in sentence to what he's about to tell Timothy. 
Why did the Apostle Paul bring together such powerful weight of God behind the statement that he's about to make? Because he knows that Timothy has a problem with nerve. Timothy would just as soon avoid the things that are difficult. He doesn't like being unpopular. And so Paul brings all the weight of God to bear on what he's about to tell Timothy. He's not saying, Timothy, this is, this is a good suggestion for you to do. He says, Timothy, listen, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is going to judge you and your ministry, you need to do something. Verse 2, preach the word. See it? Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. If we're holding the authority of the creator of the universe in our hands, then the implication, the necessary implication is that we must give it out. All of it. Not just our favorite verses, but all of it. That leads me to my application point for this part. I commit to you, by God's grace that I will do the hard work of exegesis week by week in order to handle the Scriptures as accurately as I am able to. Okay? I commit to you that I will not allow the pressures of life, the responsibilities of ministry, or my own personal laziness, of which there is a large measure, okay, to keep me from doing the hard work of exegesis so that we will bring to you week by week, as best as we are able, what the Bible really says. Furthermore, as elders, we commit to you that we will, by God's grace, humble ourselves before the Word of God, and we will let it inform, guide, and direct the decisions that we make here in this fellowship. To the extent that we're able... And by the grace of God, we will play by the same rules we would expect everybody else to play by, okay? That's our commitment to you. The Bible holds authority. Determined to obey the Bible, Foothill Bible Church submits to biblical authority. By rightly interpreting and boldly teaching the whole counsel of God is revealed in the Old and New Testament's second aspect Determined to obey the Bible, Foothill Bible Church builds up the body of Christ by means of edifying ministry, employing the precepts, principles, and patterns of Scripture to guide our ministries and direct our stewardship. What are we saying? What we're saying here is is that we commit to edifying one another through the Word of God. By applying it to our lives, precepts, principles, and patterns. It will direct all that we do. By God's grace, we 
will not model this ministry after any other church, except to the extent that another church is following a pattern that is clear in Scripture. But we will not, by God's grace, be tossed about by what is going on in the world of evangelicalism. Whatever the latest fad is, whatever the latest bandwagon that people are hopping onto, we commit to you, by God's grace, that unless we find clear evidence for it in the Word of God, we will not get on the bandwagon. Okay? That will make us unpopular. I can guarantee it. I can absolutely guarantee it. And some of you will come and say, Pastor, how come we don't? And you fill in the latest fad. And by the way, they're coming faster and faster and faster. There is a franticness about evangelicalism and searching for true spirituality. And they're looking everywhere but where they need to look. So we are not going to be tossed about by that. There are all kinds of books and conferences available with regard to the church growth movement. I have read a number of them. And I have been almost wholly unsatisfied with what I've read. For the most part, the books that I've read at least, and I've not read them all by any means, but the ones that I've read, I've read a number, the ones I've read look very much like the business texts that I used to read when I was an MBA student in the 1980s. Except now they have Bible verses at the ends of these management and marketing principles. Okay? It is warmed over MBA curriculums that now have Bible verses toenailed to the ends of them. I warned you earlier, it is, it is a dangerous thing to steal God's authority and to apply it to your own ideas. Now, I'm not saying there's not some truth in this. There may be some truths. But when you read that stuff, it comes right out of MBA school. So we are not going to be driven about by it. Jesus is very clear in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Therefore, we will go to the Word of God, the Scriptures. We are determined to go to the Bible and to do the hard work necessary to determine what is a transcultural precept. Something that's not just back there, but it's for here too. That which is a transcultural precept, a pattern or a principle of church growth. And then by God's grace, we will implement those. That will cause us to go against the flow. We're going to be unpopular. We're going to be unpopular. But that's okay. We're not in a popularity contest. Turn back to your left to 1 Timothy how dare you say, David, that, you're, that we are going to try to take out of the Bible the patterns, the principles, the precepts of church growth. I'll just notice in uh, chapter 3, 1 Timothy. I mean, is there any precedent to do this? Notice what Paul writes to Timothy, verse 14. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, Timothy. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, 
which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Whoa. Timothy, I I intend to come and, and work with you and help you here in the churches at Ephesus. But in case I'm delayed, I'm writing ahead of time to just show you and tell you how it is you're supposed to do church. It's really fascinating, I think, because uh, what's the first part of chapter 3 about? Go ahead. This is an easy question. It's like who's buried in Grant's tomb. You know, it's an easy question. What is it? It's about elders and deacons. Elders and deacons. The two official offices within the church of Jesus Christ. The only two servants within the church of Jesus Christ that are given specific requirements before they can serve. Not just faithful, available, teachable. You know, not just can fog a mirror, that kind of thing. There are very, very specific and lofty requirements that must be met. Not suggestions. By the way, if you're looking to pick leadership, these are a few things you might keep in mind. But if they don't have all of them, don't worry about it. You know, majority will do. Wow. I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, so that you know how church is to be done. And it's to be done under the authority of the Word of God. It is the Bible that is the means by which Paul writes to Timothy again, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 where he says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate or complete, equipped for every good work. Therefore, Timothy chapter 4, preach the word. Application. If... As we believe, it's true that the Bible is God's ordained means of governing His church, of shaping His church, of steering His church, of directing the ministries of a local church. Then we commit to you that by God's grace, we will continue to make the serious expositional teaching of the Scriptures a cornerstone of the ministry. Bible teaching will continue to be the cornerstone of what we do. We will do lots of other things. But the Bible will always be the bedrock of whatever we do. And that leads us to our third aspect. Determined to obey the Bible. We exhort one another toward sanctifying obedience, encouraging fidelity to biblical commands and humility in personal preferences. We're talking about sanctification. That process by which the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ. And that occurs as our understanding and obedience to the Word of God grows. It's really just that simple. 
The Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. You have been chosen for sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It is by the truth of the Word of God that your sanctification is brought about. Jesus said it much more in a much shorter and more pithy way in Luke chapter 11, verse 28. He said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Even a child can memorize that. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That is why the Apostle Paul gave his life to the teaching of the Word of God and to the exhortation to the people of God to obey what they have heard. Go with me to Colossians chapter 1 where Paul gives a a summary of sort of his ministry and his ministry method. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 Paul says, And we proclaim Him, that is Jesus Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose I also labor, striving according to His power which works mightily within me. Admonishing every man. Nuthateo in the Greek to put in mind, a noose mind, to put into their mind the Word of God. Which, by the way, is where nuthetic counseling comes from. It is an admonishing style of counseling, and it is, in my opinion, a biblical style of counseling. Okay, Admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, that we present every man complete in Christ. And for this I labor, agonizing, literally, agonizing according to the power which works mightily within me. This was Paul's recipe. This was Paul's formula. And this was what Paul passed on in Ephesians 4. So I'll go back to the left to Ephesians 4. This is what he passed on this pattern to the church. The church at Ephesus. The Ephesian letter, by the way, was a circular letter. That means it went from church to church to church to church. That tells us it was not just something for an isolated situation in Ephesus, but it was for the churches of modern-day Turkey, considered Asia Minor at the time. Verse 11, Ephesians 4, he says, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastor-teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of God, of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and, deceit, and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ." 
The ministries of the pastor-teacher are equipping ministries, helping people to come to know the Word of God so that they then might encourage one another to live according to the truth that they know. And that raises a danger that needs to be addressed. There is a danger that attaches itself to every serious Bible teaching ministry, I believe. And the danger that attaches itself is that in the church's zeal and commitment to live according to the Word of God, in obedience to that Word, the danger is a slippage over into legalism and censorious spirit. And that is a danger that we, as a fellowship, need to be aware of and need to work at correcting whenever it raises its ugly head. Now, what do I mean by this? If we are going to encourage, and we are, fidelity to the biblical commandments, then by necessity we must know what the biblical commandments are. Will you grant me that? We need to know what it is. What is a biblical commandment and what isn't? And we need to be on the guard against mistakenly assuming that what our personal convictions with regard to the Scriptures are, are indeed God's universal requirements for all people. And to do that requires maturity. It requires biblical wisdom. And it requires a huge dose of humility. A huge dose of humility. When we come to the Scriptures, we need to ask ourselves some questions. We need to be willing to ask ourselves things like, can I point to a specific biblical command or clear inference from a passage to support my view that something is a command rather than my preference? Can I open the Bible and show you that it is a command or that it is a necessary implication of something that has been written there? Can I do that? Secondly, is there any other scripture passages that speak contrary to what I think might be a command? If I think such and such is a command, is there anywhere else in scripture that speaks in a contrary way to it that I need to take into consideration? Third, is there or has there been a dispensational change that has occurred from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Such that an Old Testament command no longer is valid and binding upon me as a New Testament believer. For example... Can I wear clothes made out of two different fabrics woven together? Cotton and polyester? Fourth, is the Bible merely reporting something that happened or something that somebody said without rendering God's verdict on its validity? Let me explain that to you. 
The Bible accurately reports things that were done and said and withholds commentary within the very passage about what God thinks about what has been done and said. And so therefore, just because somebody did something in the Bible doesn't make it binding on us, not that in and of itself. For example, Gideon put out a fleece to assure himself of the will of God. God does not... Well, I I think I could probably argue that God actually does in that passage render his verdict on that fleece. It was not a sign of faith. That was not an act of faith. That fleece, he put it out a couple of times, right? He was looking for every way he could to get out from underneath what God had clearly and already directly told him to do. Yet so many people want to imitate the action of putting out a fleece. There are many, many places where something is done. The Bible doesn't tell you what God thinks about that. And the same, beloved, is true in church history. There have been many great saints of old, and if you like to read biographies, and I like to read biographies, you hear about all the things they've done, but you know what? You don't have any biblical commentary on it. You don't know whether God was pleased with that or not. So be careful. Be careful when you imitate someone else. I mean, you're certainly free to do it, but just be careful that, you're, that you don't put God's stamp of approval on it and say, we must imitate so-and-so and such-and-such just because they did it. It's crucial. Fifth. The question you need to ask yourself is, could this possibly be an area of biblical freedom whereby God allows believers to choose according to their own personal preferences? You need to ask yourself that question. Is it possible that this thing, that I'm pretty sure is a command, but is it possible that this could be an area of biblical freedom whereby God would allow people to choose in different ways? I was just reading this morning, there's an interesting little article on the history of communion. I mean, clearly, and you can do exegetical gymnastics, but clearly in the upper room, they had unleavened bread and wine. Okay? We've come along out of a common cup and common loaves. We've come a long way to crackers and grape juice and individual cups. Okay? I mean, we have come a long way. How do we get there? Does the Bible require wine and unleavened bread out of common cups and loaves? Is that the Bible requires? If it is, we ought to be doing it. Or is there freedom? To have Welch's grape juice. By the way, do you know that the, the inventor or the Mr. Welch was a Methodist minister? I just thought it was fascinating to me this morning. He was a Methodist minister. And he invented Welch's grape juice. You know why? Because the grape juice was fermenting in the cups, and it, it was during the, the, uh, the 18th century when, when um, the abolition or the, um, what's the movement I'm looking for? The uh, teetotaling movement. You know, the. Um, Well, not Prohibition. That was the 20th century. What was it? Temperance Temperance movement. That's the one I was looking for. It was during the height of the temperance movement, and there was a big dispute in the church about serving wine. And so this Methodist minister and his son figured out how to have grape juice that wouldn't ferment. The introduction of Welch's grape juice. Fascinating. Okay? 
I know, it fascinated me. Probably, you, know, you guys probably don't care less, but I found it fascinating. The next time you drink it, you'll know. All right. I'll tie this thing up in a knot here. After, um, after prayerfully studying an issue, giving yourself to it, you've searched the Scriptures, you've sought counsel of other mature believers, talked through the issue, and at the end, if you, if you cannot definitively say that this is a command that must be obeyed, then what do you do? Have your own conviction before God. Hold it as firmly as you choose. But don't put it on anybody else. Don't put it on anybody else. Understand that mature Christians can and do arrive at differing opinions. And that what is good for you and your family may not be their choice. And we must live together within a body here, a fellowship, right? Where there are differences of opinion. And we have to live in love together because the world is looking on and they want to know if Jesus Christ is real and they'll know He's real when they look at our lives and they see that we can live in the midst of diversity together. So have your personal convictions and hold them as tight as you like. But understand that we, together as a body, have to learn to live with one another. Paul says it this way, Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Give preference to one another in honor. Give preference to one another in honor. Let me paraphrase it. Go with the flow. Go with the flow. Recognize that if it's not a biblical command, the people do have different opinions, and we together as a fellowship will learn to live together with those differing opinions. And it may be your way one day, and it may be somebody else's way the next day, but together we'll live in harmony. Let me apply it for you this way. We need to encourage fidelity and humility. And that's not just the job of the elders. That is a one another responsibility. Back in Ephesians 4, I guess your Bibles are probably still there. Ephesians 4, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we, you see it? Plural pronoun, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him. We are to be speaking the truth in love one to another. We are to be growing up in all aspects unto Him. It is our responsibility to encourage one another, to admonish one another, to pray for one another, to exercise humility amongst one another so that we are growing together in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And the world looks on and they say, Wow, I want what they've got. There's plenty of turmoil out there. There's plenty of argumentativeness and divisiveness and hatred to go around. I want what those people got. Because whatever they got must have come supernaturally. As we do in every service, or try at least, is to uh, give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Things that you